According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 4 as we get started this morning. Luke 4. This will be our final session in episode 5 of the Galilean ministry. The demoniac healed on the Sabbath day. One week ago, we began the final portion of this uh, study. There are really six points of study in this text, and the sixth of which is one that will take us a little bit of time. But I don't mind doing our homework now because I think it's going to benefit us down the road. And if we uh, cover it appropriately here, then then in the uh, other 11 times that we encounter demonism, we encounter Christ casting out demons, uh, we, we are doing ourselves favors now because uh, really that should speed up the process down the road. Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace once again this morning and thank you for the privilege of teaching your word. Father, we ask especially for uh, distractions to be set aside, for your hedge of protection to be about us on every side. Father, that each believer here this morning would indeed be filled with the Spirit, with our armor on. And Father, not uh, not succumbing to the, uh, to the sensationalism or to the excitement or to the wonder of, of these passages as they center on demons. But Father, to be humbled at uh, the truth of your word and our need to rightly divide your truth. And so Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, turning to Luke chapter 4 then, we are dealing with the demoniac healed on the Sabbath day and the points of study as we have seen them, 1 through 6. This episode marks the first event with Jesus Christ involved in both a teaching and training ministry of full-time vocational disciples. Keep in mind, the adversary does not like teaching ministries to begin with. Teaching ministries will always come under increased scrutiny in the angelic conflict. But teaching ministries that are in fact training another generation of men to come alongside another generation of men to be pastors and missionaries and evangelists, that is going to double the adversary's efforts to uh, try to wreak havoc and keep that ministry from, uh, from accomplishing its work. Secondly, this episode marks the first confrontation with demonic power since Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations. It is uh, not going to be the last. There will be several such uh, uh, events. In fact, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be characterized by satanic opposition, not only in the, in the overt activity of demonism, but in the behind-the-scenes activities of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the betrayer and all the rest as they seek to bring about the end of our Lord's ministry. Thirdly, we have a man in the synagogue with the unclean spirit. Uh, we tend to get wrapped up about the... Uh, uh, aspects of the cosmos, the worldly aspects of the cosmos that are outside of our walls, we ought to be more concerned about what's inside our walls, making sure that we don't have false teachers, making sure that we are teaching the Word of God line upon line, precept upon precept. And as we have commented already, one of the greatest defenses against 
any false teaching or any demons creeping around here is, in fact, systematic, authoritative teaching of God's word. When God's word goes forward with authority, that becomes a barrier that the demons cannot abide. And so we can rest confidently that as long as Austin Bible Church maintains authoritative teaching of God's word, we won't be fearful of the demons sitting here quietly and and uh, working their destructive uh, uh, heresies in our midst. The fourth area, we focused on the demonic testimony, how striking it was. He testified to God, to Jesus Christ as being the Holy One of God. And uh, the material in Mark 1, verse 24, is what we looked at. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And the fear that was, uh, that was communicated there. Now, in the parallel account here in Luke 4, 31 through 37, we uh, have the statement, let us alone, let us alone, which uh, is a bit more expanded from Matthew's record. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Same language that we had in Mark. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Testimony that the Pharisees could not bring themselves to give, but the demons could not help themselves from giving, if that makes sense. The Pharisees couldn't give this testimony, but the demons couldn't keep from giving this testimony. Jesus Christ is the Holy One, and there is an aspect of the unholiness of the demonic realm that has to declare this, and I find that quite interesting. Likewise, the inability uh, in the spirit of Antichrist to confess Jesus is coming in the flesh, some of the hallmarks of being able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, some of the things will come up in future studies. But here, the inability to keep silent and the expectations, Jesus demanding, rebuking him, saying, be quiet and come out of him, material that we covered under point four. Under point five, Jesus cast out the demon by authoritative command. Cast out the demon by authoritative command. By the way, there were subpoints in all of this, but I can't go back and review the subpoints for all six of these points. We wouldn't gain any ground. Cast out demon by an authoritative command. Keep in mind, there's no ritual. There's no uh, mystic amulet. There's no spell casting. There's no incantation to recite. All of the processes that still to this day exist in the Roman church and in, in Pentecostal churches and other traditions where they evoke all of this uh, witchcraft to uh, follow their exorcism rituals. None of it's biblical. All of it's pagan. All of it is, in fact, demon, further demonism to try to expose other forms of demonism. And it's it's really quite sad. No, there's none of that. We have here simply authoritative command. And we have here, and we're going to see other instances of it with the apostles following Jesus Christ. And hopefully they'll give us enough understanding to recognize that when we indeed do wage war in the angelic conflict, what do we do? Do we have uh, incantations? Do we engage in direct confrontation with demons? Because Ephesians 6 says we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. Well, how do we do that? What 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 maneuvers do we do to wrestle? What maneuvers do we do to combat? See, well, the very same text that tells us who our opponent is tells us what our mechanism is and tells us that it is the corporate function of prayer in a local assembly. So we'll deal with more of those things in, not this class as much, but in uh, it's coming up in basic doctrinal studies as we uh, pursue the course of parapatology in the believer's walk. So stay tuned for that. The departure of the demon was violent for the human being involved. 
the witness to the scriptural, uh, the spiritual battle were impressed. The term miracle is not used here. And I think that's extraordinary. Uh, this is usually some some will classify the demonic expulsions as miracles. Others will not. And so you find differences when people drop their list of the miracles of Jesus Christ. Uh, the term miracle is not used here. And that uh, is in some cases an argument from silence or, or an omission. But I think it is a very telling omission that this was not a part of his overall ministry to reveal his coming from the father. This was simply a nuisance that was being removed so that he could minister uh, on behalf of the father and, and communicate the father's word in this particular synagogue. The emphasis is on teaching with authority as the emphasis stated twice, actually, um, the amazement. It says in verse 36, amazement came upon them all and they began talking with one another, saying, what is this message for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. It's the second reference to authority earlier in verse 32. They were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. And that's the uh, nature of the Lord's ministry. It's the nature of the apostles ministry. Some of the uh, even after the the uh, when you get into the book of Acts, after the, the ascension of Jesus Christ, here's the apostles, primarily Peter and John. And, and with them, the, the Pharisees are still stunned. Where do these guys get this? Here's these ignorant Galilean fishermen. How do they teach with such authority? Well, look who they learned from. You were the, the, the Pharisees were just as bamboozled with Christ. And now they're bamboozled with the apostles by the time we get into the book of Acts. And we'll be there this morning. What I want to do to wrap up this study, though, is under point six, is to examine other such demonic expulsions in Scripture. And uh, we've got to start on this as we ran out of time last week. In the Old Testament, the only example we find in the Old Testament is David's soothing of Saul's demonic influences. We don't find the demoniacs in the Old Testament like we find them in the Gospels. And that's extraordinary. It shows a shifting tactic and it shows the methodology of the adversary and how it has changed from era to era from generation to generation the primary influences of demonism that we find in the old testament are manipulating uh, kings being the power behind the thrones promoting the conquest of of empires uh populating the land with giants was a huge uh, method of the uh, in the angelic conflict in Old Testament times, uh, influencing uh, through uh, sorcerers, through uh, soothsayers, through um, those with familiar spirits, and so forth. But we find it's it's we don't find the overt possession of demoniac uh, circumstances in the Old Testament like we find in the Gospels. And by the way, we also don't find it in the epistles like we find it in the Gospels. We have a handful of examples in the book of Acts, and just the handful that we find demonstrate that even this tactic is something that's, uh, something that's fading away, something that's not going to become a regular feature of the church age. And uh, that, I think, is, uh, is noteworthy as well. We'll have some comment on that, uh, time permitting here at the end of this hour, because demonism is actually making a resurgence in the 20th century, and now here we are in the 21st century. Um, Missionaries worldwide are finding more and more uh, uh, instances of, of demoniacs, more and more instances of demon possession in the 20th century and now into the 21st century that had not been observed in, say, the 19 centuries prior to that. It's having an upsurge, and it's uh, remarkable since the first since the first advent 
was characterized by such an upsurge. How does this uh, indicate our proximity to the second advent, for example? Might we expect that the second advent of Jesus Christ will likewise feature an upsurge of demoniacs, an upsurge of actual demon possession, such as we're observing here? I think it does. And so, uh, again, one of the signs of the time, so to speak, that demonstrates our proximity to the rapture and our proximity to the tribulational age when the restrainer is gone. And when Satan is free to unleash his plan and program upon this uh, this lost and dying world. So subpoint A, the Old Testament, really David's soothing of Saul's demonic influences is really the only uh, example we can find of anything even approaching a possession. And that's not even a possession, but rather uh, influences as we observed it. Then with Jesus Christ in the Gospels, we find a number of demonic expulsions. And this is where we ran out of time. We covered the first uh, two or three of these, I think the first three of these, and uh, you can just outline them one through twelve. Some of them um, we may find more by the time we complete our study, but these are simply the twelve that I found in putting these together. And some of them are rather obscure, and so I don't uh, think that perhaps I maybe missed one or two or more along the way, and we'll come across those in uh, the process of, of this study. The very first one is the one we've been studying here, the demoniac healed on the Sabbath day. That is Galilean ministry event, not number seven, Galilean ministry event number five. Galilean ministry event number five. From Mark 1, verses 21 through 28, and Luke 4, verses 31 through 37. That's the incident that we've been studying here. So we have a typo on the screen. We had it last week, too. Galilean ministry number five in your harmony of the Gospels. From Mark 1 and from Luke 4. The second one comes in Luke 6. If we just turn over a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 6, we can recognize this. And you'll see why it is that some of these are, um, maybe we don't have a complete list because some of these are hard to spot. And we might have overlooked some in the process of doing this. Uh, Jesus came down with them and stood on a large, uh, on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, uh, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And it's interesting is because this almost is given in passing. It's almost like casting out demons was uh, was uh, was an inconvenience. It was uh, just kind of something that had to be done so that the demons can be cleared out of here. So Jesus could teach Bible class so that those that were afflicted with demons could have the, the demonic influence removed and give the human beings left behind then a free volitional opportunity to hear the gospel and accept it. See, understanding, of course, that all demoniacs are unbelievers for the purposes of, of recognizing that a believer couldn't be a demoniac in the first place. Here's an unbeliever now has the demons cleared out and has an opportunity with with the the decks cleared, so to speak, has the opportunity to hear the gospel, to see Christ for themselves and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And but it's not the point. The point is not look at me. I'm casting out demons. Look at me, I'm doing miracles. The point is, listen to me, I've got a message to communicate. As this Luke 6 passage makes um, very clear, because he turns his gaze towards his disciples and begins to teach. And, and this crowd, 
has the opportunity to listen to the teaching. And um, we'll cover the uh, the material there in Luke 6. That's uh, Galilean ministry number 15, by the way, multitudes healed. It's covered not only in Luke 6, but also in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3. But in Luke 6 is where we have the reference to the unclean spirits that are being cured. Almost in passing. Almost just kind of like when a pastor comes in and he's got to make sure the lights are on, the door is unlocked, and the air conditioning is going. You know? Jesus Christ comes in and let's cast the demons out of here. Okay, let's have Bible class. The third instance, in the presence of the Baptist disciples, next chapter over, Luke 7. And once again, it's a comment almost made in passing. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now notice... What he's doing in verse 21 and what he quotes in verse 22. Because in verse 21, he's curing of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, giving sight. And when he quotes the the text here, the Old Testament, he says, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. There's no reference to demons in what he quotes. There's no reference to demons in the Old Testament quotation. The casting out of demons was not a uh, prophecy where the Old Testament said, hey, when the Christ appears, he's going to be casting out demons. It was, this was almost just a secondary issue. He's fighting the angelic conflict on the one hand so that he can fulfill what he's supposed to be doing here in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So again, how many is this? Don't know. There was a crowd in Luke 6. How many? Don't know. How many is he doing here? Don't know. It just says that there were a number and he was doing this. All right, the fourth example, Mary Magdalene and other women. And for this, we have it in Luke 8. So many legends are in apocryphal writings and other things have come up. Even to this very day, we end up with stupid things out there like the Da Vinci Code and all kinds of other evil garbage all right when there's surprisingly very little in in god's word about any of this but there's some and here's one that we have luke 8 1 through 3 we will cover this in galilean ministry event number 23 making sure i have the right numbers since the first one had a typo in it making sure all our Harmony uh, references are appropriate this morning. It is Galilee Ministry 23, another tour of Galilee, recorded only in Luke 8, not in Matthew, Mark, or John. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. So is this a charismatic ministry? No, it is a teaching ministry, teaching with authority. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. All right, Women, plural. Mary Magdalene was not the only female demoniac involved in this passage. She's the one that gets all the press, because she's the one that's named here primarily. But there are others that are named here as well. But women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. 
All right. How many? Don't know. But of the ones who were, these are the ones that are named. Uh, Mary, who is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. We'll give you more biography on her. Magdalena is probably a geographic reference to a village where she was from or where she grew up. There's other speculation as far as what Magdalene or Magdalena represents. But from whom seven demons had gone out. Not only was she a demoniac, but a multiple offender. Nowhere near approaching Legion, though. Legion probably had a several thousand demons inside of him. Seven is rather, uh, rather small. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna. Find it interesting. I'm not going to talk to Susanna about this, but she's got a sister named Joanna, and it's uh, interesting. Of course, they're all pastor's daughters, too, by the way, and I'm not sure what the thought was for... Sometimes parents just pick names because they like the name, you know, in any event. Uh, and many others who were contributing to their support out of the private means. Now, we don't know about Joanna. We don't know about Susanna. Were they healed of demons or were they healed of sicknesses? You know, the text says women who have been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. And the only one we know for certain that was demoniac was Mary Magdalene, because that tells us seven demons had gone out. With Joanna and Susanna... Don't know. Was it demons? Was it sicknesses? Don't know. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is it doesn't really matter. Whatever it was, they were driven away. They were healed. These women accepted Christ. They're now born again. They're now responding in grace to the grace they received. They now want to minister uh, in, in grace and love because they've been forgiven of so much. They're believers now and they're serving. That's the point. Not the gee whiz sensationalism of casting out demons. We'll have more on that coming up as well. All right, the fifth one. There's a blind and a moot demoniac. I like saying moot. Some people like mute. But there's uh, two pronunciations for it, and I'm fond of the moot pronunciation. It is uh, number 24, the very next incident, in fact, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As long as I'm in Luke, let's just stay in the same gospel here. Luke 11, 14 through 23. This is incident number 24. Here is a demoniac who, uh, by virtue of the infestation, is reacting with blindness and loss of speech. Not every human body reacted exactly the same way to the presence of demons. And part of the problem is, is we get distracted by the effects rather than the the cause, the cause is there's a demon living in there. The cure is cast the demon out. And whether the effect is blindness or uh, loss of speech or epilepsy or epileptic type seizures or just general insanity where they're pulling their clothes off and screaming and living in cemeteries, things like that. There's a variety of different effects that are seen. There's a variety of different insanities that are, that are launched as the, on the basis of demons infesting a human being. The point is, there's a demon in there that doesn't belong in there. When the demon's gone, the problem's cleared up. All right? You know, casting out demons is not like a medical process. So often with our medical process, what are the doctors really doing? Are they curing the issue or are they just simply medicating the symptoms? Are they, are, they, are they treating the symptoms or are they actually removing the issue? With Jesus Christ casting out demons, the demons are gone, the issue is removed, and lo and behold, sight comes back, speech is returned, sanity, the, the person's back in their right mind. 
Now, this isn't a medical process. This is a spiritual process, removing the demonic influence that has been possessing and controlling the human being involved. All right, in Luke 11, uh, 14 through 23, is a very long process. Uh, it's, it's one in which the, uh, the Pharisees were very uh, skeptical. He was casting out a demon, and it was moot. And when the demon had gone out, the moot man spoke, and crowds were amazed. And some of them said, he's doing this. He's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Again, if casting out demons is a miracle, then why would they be asking him for a miracle? <laughs> uh, casting out demons is not a miracle. It's just the process of engaging in angelic conflict and fulfilling your ministry. But he knew their thoughts and said, A kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. And he's pointing out that they are correct, that the uh, Satan casting out Satan does actually happen. But that's not what he's doing. Satan casting out Satan demonstrates the divided nature of Satan's kingdom. Demonstrates the, the pending fall of Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is about to be laid waste. They're going to be disarmed. They're going to be defeated. That's why he came. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. He tells the Pharisees, go ahead and bring your exorcists forward. We'll ask them what their methodology is. And Jesus knows full well what their methodology is. The Pharisees are rife, just riddled with, with demoniacs and demonism and, and uh, incantations and various ways by which in their traditions they're invoking the name of Solomon and they're using amulets and they're using spells and they're using things that supposedly came down to them from Solomon. None of them are biblical. They're all demonic. They're involved in this activity. We'll see more of this in the book of Acts. Then he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's exactly what's happening. The finger of God. How tough is it for, for Jesus Christ to cast out demons? Well, what can you do with your finger? You know, this isn't, you know, it, there's, there's different passages of the Bible, primarily in the Old Testament, that talk about the hand of God, the arm of God, the shoulder of God. How about just the finger of God? You know, casting out a demon is just like, you know, Big deal. Big deal. Interesting passage. And also, notice, if we glance on down here to verse 24, there's a lot of these that we're just, when we get to them in the text, we're going to gloss over because we're, cut, we're doing our homework now. This is one, though, that when we do get to this text, um, we're going to have to spend more time with it. Or if when we do uh, an exhaustive demonology or angelology, this is one we're going to have to examine. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and will not find any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. Isn't that interesting? There are degrees of evil within the demonic community. Seven more evil than itself, and they go and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. See, the problem with casting out demons and then not leading these unbelievers to Christ is that they are then vulnerable to even greater demonic influence the next time around. That the sweeping and putting in order gives them the volitional opportunity to accept the, the provision for salvation, but if they harden their heart and don't accept it, 
then the the next bout with demonism is going to be even worse. You know, and it's not any different than uh, alcoholic addictions, drug addictions, sex addictions, other forms of of uh, carnality. When you when you're delivered from a particular addiction for a period of time and then you plunge back into it, guess what? It's worse. When you're when these demons are are swept clean and then they return, it's much worse. We'll have more to say on it because demonism is so much like uh, the, the pattern of demonism is so identical to the pattern of, of alcohol or drug addiction that uh, it's really a remarkable study. So we'll do more work on that. The sixth one is 12 of these, by the way. We have the Gadarene demoniac. One demon in Matthew's record, uh, one demoniac, I think, in Matthew's record, two in Luke's record. Let's just stay in Luke. Luke 8, 26 through 39. Might have it backwards. So back up now to Luke 8. This is uh, Galilee ministry number 29. And uh, we have a single individual here. They sailed to the country of the, of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And he came out into the land, and he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. You notice the similarity in this, man, in this demon's fear to the one we've been studying already? Recognizing Jesus' deity, recognizing that torments are pending. The one in, that we've studied already from the first one said, it's not time yet. This one here says, don't torment me. Or he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man and seized him many times. But he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet it would break its bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus said to him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him. We don't know exactly how many. We just know that he's taken the name of Legion. And we happen to know what the uh, makeup of a Roman Legion was at that time. (laughs) And whether he literally had that many demons or not, who's to say? But there were several, obviously, to, uh, to take a name like that. And they were imploring him, begging him. It's the same language we should be using in our evangelism. They were begging him not to command them. To go away into the abyss. Not go away into the abyss. And part of what we'll study, I'm not sure exactly when it'll come up, but we're going to have to deal with the underworld. We're going to have to deal with the abyss. We're going to have to talk about Abraham's bosom. Probably, I'm guessing, uh, Lazarus, the rich man of Lazarus, will be a good chapter to deal with that, to deal with the different compartments of Sheol, to deal with. Where do demons go when they're not roaming the earth? Where, you know, where do they hang out? What is their abode? Um, and some of the things there. Well, probably give you, a, you can't really call it geography, because geo implies the earth, right? Here. <laughs> so it's not geography, but it's some kind of hellography or some kind of, uh, we'll have to come up with a term for it. But we're going to have to map the underworld. Maybe it'll be a, Hadesology or something to chart out the abyss, torments, Abraham's bosom, Tartarus, lake of fire. All right, and some of the the geography or the 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 hellology of of the underworld will be very helpful for us in distinguishing between angels, fallen angels, and demons. Because fallen angels and demons, I am firmly convinced, are not to be equated. 
So here's the Gadarene demoniac. Number seven, there's another mute demoniac. Some people uh, say that five and seven are one and the same. But um, I think there's very real reasons to keep them separated and our harmony keeps them separated. This is uh, Galilean ministry event number 32, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 32 through 34 uh, of chapter 9. It's similar to the blind and mute demoniac that we had uh, in the fifth point there. But Matthew records them both. You know, why the people who insist that this event is the same as the other event have to assume that Matthew was confused because Matthew recorded them both. He recorded one of them in chapter 9 and one of them in chapter 12. And they say, well, Matthew must have been confused because he recorded them twice and he recorded them out of order. Matthew obviously was confused. No. I think Bible scholars are confused when they reject the fact that God wrote the Bible through inspired authors. That's where they go wrong in the first place. There's a mute demoniac in Matthew 9, 32 through 34. There's the Syrophoenician woman in uh, Matthew 15 and in Mark 7. I'll turn back to the Mark record of this. Interestingly enough, um, Christ doesn't even lay eyes on this girl. The mother comes to him from a distance. And in response to her faith, he grants her prayer request. I'm giving away clues, aren't I? prayer request we don't want believers uh putting on costumes and chanting incantations and getting all sensational about what they do and casting out demons but we do there are legitimate prayer requests that we make in a corporate prayer setting so this woman comes with a prayer request on her daughter's behalf in mark 7 um, this was during one brief time where he leaves um, Israel, so to speak, he goes to Phoenicia, goes to the coastal region, which wasn't really leaving Israel, biblically speaking, because God had promised that land to Abraham. It's just that Israel never occupied it, not from Joshua's conquest to David's to Solomon's, even at its greatest extent, they never occupied the coastal cities there. Um, so he wasn't really leaving the Abrahamic land grant, but he was leaving territory that had at any time been uh, under the domain of, of Jewish authority. And uh, in verses 24 through 30, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. See, it's hard to take a vacation <laughs> when there's all these ministry demands, see. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He was, he was ministering to the Jewish people. That was his calling. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She says, I know I'm just a Gentile dog. I know you don't have time to minister to my people or to come to my city or any of this other stuff, but... You know, even dogs can eat table scraps. Don't you have anything, any crumbs that can drop off your table? And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon had left. So, what a miracle. And uh, similar to uh, others we've already seen where from a distance he just 
says the word and, and the will of the Father is accomplished. In Matthew 15, he has an astonishment with respect to her faith. And um, where she again says, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. The ninth, there's an epileptic that's healed in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Go back to Luke again. I like Luke's accounts the best for all of these, really. Just he was a doctor, and his descriptions tended to be more vivid in some of the physical aspects of what these demons were doing to these bodies. So by and large, I like the, the Luke records in, in all of these incidents. And on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only, my one and only, my only begotten. And a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as he leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. All right, here's the example here. Um, verse 42, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him into the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And uh, the disciples were all worked up about how come we couldn't, uh, <laughs> how come we couldn't cast out this demon? What, what, were we do, what were we doing wrong? We'll talk about that as well. There was uh, number ten was a mute demon. In Luke 11, we have now concluded the Galilean ministry. Nine of these took place in the Galilean ministry. Nine out of the twelve episodes we're going to see were during the Galilean ministry. Only three final examples. This one was during the Perean ministry, the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, the 11th event in the Perean ministry. The Galilean ministry, by the way, has 56 events. The Perean ministry has 42. The last Judean and Perean ministry, number 11, Luke 11:14 11, through 26. Again, there's going to be an accused connection with Beelzebub. Again, there'll be a message fairly similar to the message we've already read through this morning. But this one occurs in the Priam ministry, not in the Galilean ministry. And so we differentiate it from the, uh, from the other account. Luke 11. And actually, I need to go back up to number 5 and cross off Luke 11. If you'll join me, just cross off this reference because Galilean ministry 24 is covered by Matthew and Mark and it is not rightly connected to the Perean ministry of Luke 11. So go ahead and cross off that Luke reference from number five because we include that down here under number 10. The mute demon from the Prean ministry, the 11th episode of the Prean ministry. All right, two more. There's a crippled woman in uh, Luke 13. 
can join me there. Luke 13, there's a crippled woman. It is the 16th event in the Prean ministry. A woman that has actually been under bondage for many years. When you stop to wonder, how long would a demon, I mean, wouldn't a demon get bored? <laughs> Don't they have better things to do than live inside of a human being? Well, what else would a demon have to do? All right, Luke 13, 10 through 17. He, as he was, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Eighteen years. Sometimes we don't like our testing. <laughs> we don't like what we go through. We think it's long enough. That's enough of that now. Take my problems away. I don't like this. And have we approached 18 years yet? Have we approached 90 years yet? How long did Sarah wait to have a baby? How long is this test going to last? So what if it lasts 18 years? So what if it lasts 100 years? It's still momentary light affliction. Not worthy to be compared to an eternal weight of glory. Can you call 18 years momentary? Probably not. At least not at my age. I think the older you get, the longer stretch you get away with calling momentary. <laughs> right? Do I get an amen this morning? <laughs> All right. You know, obviously when you're 10 years old, that's a long time. You would never think of 18 years as momentary when you're 10. Because that's forever. That's like more than your entire life. There's no way 18 years is momentary. But when you're in your 40s and your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, and maybe you can look back over an 18-year stretch and say, wow, has it been 18 years already? Where did that go? It just flew by. See. So here's a woman, been under bondage for 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hand on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which this work should be done. So come during them and get healed. Not on the Sabbath day. <laughs> you see how ridiculous legalism is? I mean, on its face, this is, this is absurd. Saying, miracles are off limits on the Sabbath. If you want, you can come Sunday through Friday. That's fine. You know, you know, I can almost imagine he's putting, he's going to paint a sign for the door, you know, that healings and miracles are okay Sunday through Friday, but Saturday off limits. What is that? And the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. And he's not the only one. He calls them hypocrites, plural. It's the whole system. The whole system of rabbinic Judaism in the first century was hypocritical, hypocritical legalism. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. See, this was not just a normal sickness. This was a demonic affliction. Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath? You want, to, you want her to wait till tomorrow? Isn't 18 years long enough? 
Why shouldn't she be released today? In fact, this is really the best of days to be released because this is a day we're supposed to focus on the things of the Lord. What better day to do a miracle? What better day to glorify God than the Sabbath? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. Well, yeah, because it only makes sense. It only exposes the, the rigid legalism for the lunacy that it is. They were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Why is it? It's good news to the crowd. They're rejoicing. It's certainly good news to the woman. She's rejoicing. God's getting glory here. And the only ones that aren't rejoicing with those who rejoice are these sour grapes down in the dumps. Children of the adversary. You brood of vipers. They're not rejoicing because Jesus is breaking their Sabbath. And they don't like being told by the Lord of the Sabbath that their Sabbath is not their Sabbath. All right, then the, oh, the 12th, on the way to the cross, Korean ministry number 20. Again, it's just another one in passing. They're en route, so to speak, en route, if you're a route person or a route person. En route, Luke 13, 32. In verse 31, just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Why are the Pharisees trying to help him out anyway? Why do you think the Pharisees are saying, uh, 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 don't go there. Be careful. Herod wants to kill you. Well, we'll deal with that. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, this is a wonderful confrontation, not just with the Pharisees, not just with Herod. He says, you go tell that old fox. There's a huge angelic component to this, and we'll deal with that as well as he approaches Gethsemane and as he wrestles in prayer as uh, the conflict rages. All right, following the ministry of Jesus, there are additional demonic expulsions. And I just give them to you under point C, the apostles' demonic expulsions you might say the apostles and others. Demonic expulsions by the apostles and others, because they're not all apostles. Demonic expulsions by the apostles and others, but not very many. And as I pointed out earlier, it really tapers off, and then it disappears. There is no mention of demonic expulsion in Romans through Jude. None. We have instructions in how to train men for the ministry. We have scripture on how to uh, on what a local church should be doing. We have instructions on the Lord's Supper. We've got instructions on a variety of other things on teaching the word. But nowhere you would think in Paul's letters to Timothy or Titus in the pastoral epistles, somewhere there would be instructions for Casting out demons, if in fact that was necessary as a feature of the local church. But we have none. We have no reference in the epistles. And as I say, it starts to peter out here. Uh, we start, first of all, as he's training these guys. They're given authority to do this. But 
this is during the setting of his own ministry. The context of them going out during his ministry. When, of course, there's tons of demoniacs everywhere. This is what the adversary is doing to try to hinder the ministry of the Christ. Given authority to do so by Jesus. Matthew 10, 1, Mark 3, 14 and 15. Matthew 10. The apostles were given authority to do so by Jesus. Matthew 10, 1, Mark 3, 14 and 15. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Notice, though, it's not a spiritual gift. It's not a miracle. It's authority. Authority. Teaching with authority. The names of the twelve apostles are these, and it lists them from Peter to Judas. And they go out and they minister. And um, notice, in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Just like when he was in the Syrophoenician region, he was trying to go on vacation, he was trying to take a break. His ministry was to Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Wow, they could have raised the dead. We don't have any record that they did so, but that's the kind of authority they had. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. And it goes on to describe this. They'll have different instructions later when he sends them back out again on a subsequent training ministry. And... Um, and the things here. All right. Given power. Secondly, we have an unknown individual likewise doing such things. Luke 10. So we leave Matthew 10 and we look over to Luke 10. We don't even know this guy's name. But he's not one of them. An unknown person in Luke 10. Now at this point, the 70 are going out. And... Um, Ooh, I think that's wrong. That's the wrong scripture. Yep, that's the scripture for number three. The unknown person is in Luke 9, 49 through 50. So cross off Luke 10. And write in there Luke 9, 49 and 50. This is where the disciples are all caught up in their own glory, in their own selfishness. An argument says in verse 46, started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Which of these 12? You know, they're all knuckleheads. <laughs> but which one's going to be the greatest? And so he takes a child and he says, here's your example. And then in verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. <laughs> He's not one of us. Just like the Pharisees, you know. You're not one of us. You didn't go to our school. And Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Let him go. What are you worried about them for? You know, why do churches get all so worked up about what the next church is doing? They've got to answer to the Lord same as we do. Let's just serve. Let's, let's be busy about what we're supposed to be doing. Anyway, 
demons. There's somebody casting out demons. Don't even know who he is. He's not one of the twelve even. But he's doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. He's obviously a believer. He obviously understands what this authority is all about. He had a problem with a demon in the area. He got rid of it. Great. Then in chapter 10, the 70 are sent forth. If you've never done a study on the 70, uh, it's kind of fun to do. You thought Mary Magdalene had a lot of traditions, a lot of legends, a lot of mythology built up around her. That's true. There's a lot of, of uh, mythology and apocryphal writings and other legends and stories on Mary Magdalene, but nothing compared to these 70. There are so many legends growing up about these 70. There are so many people that are claimed to have been of the 70 that there must have been more than 70 of them. <laughs> if you believe every legend, they say, oh, you know, here's so-and-so. He was one of the 70. Really? How do you know that? Their names aren't listed here. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. So here's Luke 10, the 70 are sent forth. And they've got instructions. And uh, they're being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And, and uh, they've got instructions about no money belt, no bag, and no shoes. And uh, similar instructions there. But notice down in verse 17, when they come back, the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Okay. Now, I find it remarkable. And um, because he, when he get, when he sent the disciples out, he uh, specifically told them they were going to have this kind of power. When he sends the 70 out, he doesn't really make mention of it. But they come back and find, wow, we've got this kind of power. And they're all excited about it. We can, we can order demons around. He says, that's no big deal. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. But it's no big deal. That's just a part of being redeemed, a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and a part of being a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's the real aspect to celebrate. You're born again, you're regenerate, you've got a message out there delivering the gospel. Don't get all excited about this, about the opportunity to cast out demons. If there's a demon, cast it out, get rid of it, move on, give the gospel. Necessary during the time that Christ was walking the earth and when the, the demoniacs were as prevalent as they were. So the 70 were likewise given such authority. Our fourth example, we have Philip the Evangelist. And notice both, all three of those were during the ministry of Christ in the Gospels. We only have two places here. We have three. With others during the church age. Philip the Evangelist in Acts 8, 6 through 8. And uh, Saul is ravaging the church, throwing them into prison. Believers are being scattered. Uh, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. 
Was the point the miracle? Was the point the casting out demons? Or was it evangelism going on? It was evangelism going on. It was teaching with authority. And then finally, the Apostle Paul cast out demons from a slave girl at Philippi and other places as well. Acts 16, 16 through 18. Acts 19, 12. And it's interesting, if you'll join me in Acts 16, we'll wind this up here. Um, it's almost, I've, I've commented several times how it, it appears to be incidental. It appears to just be in the course of doing business, like turning on the lights and getting the air going and opening the doors. You know, it'll be like you're, you're walking through the kitchen and there's a cockroach, so you stomp on it. It's not a major event, and you don't write the event down in your diary. <laughs> you know, it's just something you did on the way to Bible class, something you did while, uh, you know, to, to keep distractions away. And it's been like that through a number of these incidents we've already seen. And here, I don't think it could be more plain because Paul's really ignoring this girl. All right, they're in Philippi. It says in verse 16, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, this is on the way. They get waylaid. They get ambushed. They're going to a place of prayer. There's no synagogue that they go to. They go to this down by the river where they have a little prayer area, things set up. They're going down there to pray, and then they encounter this girl. And uh, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. Many days. So every day when Paul and Luke and Titus and Timothy and Sylvanus and all these guys, they're headed down to the river, they're headed to prayer meeting, this girl is following after them at this one particular stretch of road every day as they're headed down there. Now, it wasn't at the prayer meeting, and it wasn't at any place of ministry. It wasn't where the gospel was going forth. It wasn't, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's not where Paul had to uh, clear the deck, so to speak, in this evangelism ministry or, or anything dealing with the ministry here. This was just on the way. And for a day after day after day after day, however many days it was, Paul did not cast that demon out. Well, why not? I mean, it seems like it'd be the thing to do, wouldn't it? It's kind of like the um, the the paralytic guy there laying by the in the portico of Solomon, and Peter and John healed him, right? Men been laying there for years and years and years. Jesus Christ had been by there how many times? Jesus never healed him in any of those previous trips, but Peter and John healed him in the early part of Acts. There, well, why didn't Jesus heal him before? Why is Paul not casting out this demon before? Until finally, Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. <laughs> and then, of course, problems because her masters see that their, uh, their, their, their goose is cooked. You know, the goose that laid the golden egg, their source of income, this girl that could see the future. Now that's gone. And now they're going to throw the whole city into confusion and start riots and all the rest. Um, but you see what I mean by being almost incidental? Paul, in fact, was willing to let that demon go every day as he was going to the, going to the prayer meeting. 
And then the moment he does cast out the demon, it launches the turmoil and starts the riots and ends up ending his ministry here in, in uh, Philippi where he's going to get the jailer saved and then he's going to have to leave town. And then a few others in Acts 19, verse 12. Acts 19 and verse 12. Now here's, here's where some of the mythology legends started to build. Um, and I want you to see something here because it happened in the context of authoritative teaching. He was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, and says in verse 9, for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is one of the, the greatest ministries Paul ever had, was this ministry here in Ephesus. And God is performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. But this was in the context of validating the teaching with authority message that was taking place in the school of Tyrannus. In fact, somebody has photographs of this that I was told. Uh, there we go. We're going to see some photographs of this at some point. All right. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons or were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now that little passage there launched so many things in the medieval Roman church, I can't begin to tell you. Everything from relics to the bones of this guy and the bone of that guy and all kinds of other things. For one passage that deals with how powerful the teaching ministry was in the school of Tyrannus. When, if you just read a couple more verses down, you realize the folly of trying to use an incantation or trying to use a superstition or trying to use a, uh, uh, a relic or any other such thing. Seven sons of one Sceva. Here's some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And uh, seven sons of one Sceva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. I know about Paul. Why? Because for two years now, that teaching ministry in the school of Tyrannus was doing amazing things in Ephesus. The salt and light that was being spread there was devastating to the demonic powers. He says, I recognize, acknowledge, uh, I am subject to the authority of Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who do you think you are? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them. One guy whooped up on seven. One demoniac thrashed these seven uh, exorcists. Overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That was quite a thrashing. All right. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. All right. Well, that takes care of that. Do we have any questions, anything at all, before I wrap it up? Susie. Uh, disciple is a student. Uh, Mathetes uh, comes from the verb manthano, meaning to learn. 
And so disciples, a student, we're all disciples. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. An apostle is a sent one. Apostello means to send with a commission. And so an apostello is an apostle is somebody who's been sent forth with a commission. And the 12 disciples became the 12 apostles. And so with res- with respect to Peter and that crowd, it's, it's interchangeable. But with respect to those others who were who became disciples later, they didn't automatically get promoted into apostles because apostle was a gift and an office in the church age. Good question, though. All right, Michael. Um, demons and fallen angels are oftentimes taught as being interchangeable. That demons are fallen angels, fallen angels are demons. Um, I believe that not to be the case. I believe angels are angels, fallen or otherwise, and that demons are not. That they are evil spirits, uh, that they are not, they are subject to the fallen angels. The fallen angels rule over them, but they are not fallen angels. They are evil spirits. And um, that's a great question. In fact, uh, there'll be more of that coming out. Um, and uh, I really do want to do a developed angelology at some point. Oh, yes, they're still part of the invisible spectrum of conflict. They're definitely uh, part of the invisible spectrum of conflict, but they are not fallen angels. They are the spirits of the, of the giants. They are the spirits of the, uh, that were destroyed in the flood that are now without bodies. And that's why they crave to be occupying bodies in the circumstances there. But we'll have more teaching on that in upcoming classes when we develop a, a more thorough angelology. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And Father, we do thank you that um, we have armor. We have the truth of your word. That we have the promises. Resist the devil. He will flee from us. We, uh, Father, have all things necessary for life and godliness. All the weaponry, all the equipment, all the resources we need. That our adversary has indeed been disarmed. So, Father, I pray that equipped believers would be equipped to handle any battle in the angelic conflict. And I thank you that we're receiving the teaching to do just that. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.